0: Good morning, once again, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Acts. As we begin our journey through this pretty incredible book, important book, as all of them are throughout Scripture, but as you turn, I don't know about you, but I have always enjoyed history, Um, enjoyed studying history, looking at history, and the older I've gotten, the more I've grown to appreciate history. You want to know where you're going in life? Very helpful to look back and to see uh, where you've already been and where those before you have already been. Take time to learn from those who have gone before us. Learn from their victories. Look from their, look, learn from their defeats. Keep doing what works. Avoid that which hasn't worked. That's like uh, the epitome of wisdom, right? Learn from others' failures. Um, don't make the same mistakes as those before us have made. I think about all this and, and think about our study through Ecclesiastes. Now it says there's nothing new underneath the sun. Generations come and generations go, but with each passing generation, we think about it, There's there's really nothing new. New inventions, yes, but accomplishing the same things in in many ways just different names different faces all along the way filling the headlines and the stories that that come you think about it the same applies to the church as well for when we look back on on the over 2,000 year history of the church we see many of the same controversies don't we They may be repackaged in different ways, but we see many of the same controversies, many of the same threats, many of the same challenges. There's nothing new under the the sun. But what we also see when we look back over the 2,000-year history of the church, we look back to its origin, we see the same mission. We see nothing has changed. Just different generations over the years that are called to carry out and bring forth the mission. And while the temptation we often face today is to be unique, isn't it? This temptation to be cutting edge, to bring something new to the table, to have a new methodology, a new program, a new thing that's going to be able to take the gospel forth. Tempted to bring those new things, those innovative ideas to the table to, to help grow the church. What we really need today as the church, if we're looking for, for real, healthy, sustainable growth, is to look to the past in order to be able to see our way forward. We need to look to the past, all the way to the past, all the way back, even here to the book of Acts, not even even here, but to here they all argue that we have to understand the past if we are to properly understand our purpose in the present and in the future which is exactly why Luke wrote the gospel that contains his name and this book we call acts writing them to provide someone named Theophilus with an orderly account that he may have certainty concerning the things that he has been taught that is, Luke writes these two works so that Theophilus may have certainty regarding, one, the person and work of Christ. Certainty regarding the kingdom of God. And certainty regarding the, the role we who are in Christ play in the overall work of the kingdom. He's writing so that Theophilus may have certainty. But of course, the question is what? Who in the world is Theophilus? Like, who is this guy that both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts is dedicated to? And to be honest, we don't know with any absolute certainty. Really, this is, these two mentions are all that we have of Theophilus. It's all we've got. So he could, could have been a, a new or relatively young believer. Maybe Luke desired to instill confidence in him regarding these things. Some believe that he may have been a a Roman official because of how Luke addressed him as the most excellent or most honorable. But personally, I, I think the answer is potentially broader than just one individual. It doesn't mean it's not dedicated to one individual, but it could be broader. And here's why. Because the name Theophilus Theophilus, literally means lovers of God or dear to God. And who are lovers of God or those who are dear to God? Christians, the, the church. In fact, let's look at this together. Hold your finger here in Acts chapter 1 and quickly turn with me to the introduction of Luke's gospel. Just go back a few pages, a few chapters to Luke's gospel, and let's read it together with the the literal meaning of Theophilus inserted where his name would be found. So looking at Luke chapter 1, verse 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent lovers of God, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So I believe that the you who Luke is writing to in these words is the church. I could be wrong there, but either way, it doesn't take away the the point of these books. They definitely apply to us, whether it's written to a, a specific individual or not. There's definitely for the church broadly, and that's the way we look at them. But we see with Luke, he doesn't write as an eyewitness, does he? No, what's he write as? He's writing as an historian. But not as a historian writing about things that that took place hundreds of years in the past, but writing about things that took took place over the past 30 years or so. It's a big difference, right? Big difference in writing about things that took place hundreds of years ago and things that took place 30 years ago. Why? Because he's allowed to talk to who? Witnesses people who experience this for themselves. He's able to interview them, to talk with them, to to engage them, including the Apostle Paul, who he had an extremely close connection with. In fact, it's Paul who gives this book and Luke's gospel its apostolic witness, its apostolic authority. Because remember, Luke wasn't an apostle. To, To our knowledge, he never saw the resurrected Christ. But he closely walked and talked with those who did. And he wrote their accounts down to to give those who are lovers of God an orderly account. That we may, what? Have certainty of these things. These things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Pertaining to all that Jesus taught. Because what is it that marked Even the apostles' early understanding of of Jesus and the kingdom up to this point in our overall narrative. So moving through the gospel, like say all through the gospel of Luke, all about Jesus, his life, his ministry, and and then his death, resurrection. And then we we come to this point and right up here to Acts chapter 1, what marked the apostles' understanding about Jesus and all that he taught? uncertainty uncertainty confusion remember how jesus told them on three separate occasions we've talked about this at great length over the years right jesus came and he taught them on three separate occasions that he must suffer and die and rise from the dead and they were how did they respond no that's not going to happen no jesus you don't know what's going to happen the audacity of peter and the others to speak that way to jesus Or they became so confused as Jesus continued to teach them that they just grew silent. It's like, we're not going to ask him anymore about this because I know that we're supposed to know, but we really don't know. So we're just going to not say anything at all to not show how confused we really are. Why? Because their understanding of Jesus, their understanding of the, the, the promised Messiah... They believed that this long prophesied and awaited Messiah was going to be a David-like king, a political leader who was going to come in militarily and free and redeem, restore the kingdom of Israel, like get Rome out of the picture and make Israel chief again. That's what they were thinking. That's what they were waiting for, but freeing from Roman oppression. So, yeah, they believed in the kingdom of God. And they believed Jesus to be the long-awaited Messiah. There's no confusing that. They believed him to be the king of the kingdom. But they didn't have any certainty as to what that actually meant. Even after the resurrection, when Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, remember that? We looked at the end of Luke chapter 24. They still lacked a full understanding. Just look at the apostles' question here in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They're like, okay. (laughs) Now that you have conquered death, so they've seen the resurrected Christ, he's opened their eyes to understand the scriptures, and they're like, okay, there's Jesus, and there's Jesus, and there's Jesus as they read through the text. They're like, okay, now is the time to restore the kingdom of God. I mean, they're ready to roll, aren't they? They're ready to go. Death cannot defeat our king. Let's do this. Like <laughs> right, They're excited. Which reveals what about them? Great zeal, right? Well, in fairness, if you had witnessed the resurrection, resurrected Christ, wouldn't you have great zeal? They've got great zeal. They're ready to go. Let's do this. That's awesome. The resurrection should bring zeal. But their zeal is still without what? Understanding. It's still without proper understanding, which is always what? It's dangerous. Zeal without understanding is dangerous. And it reveals they still don't possess a right understanding of the kingdom of God or God's plans to establish the kingdom. They don't possess certainty that's rooted in truth which is why Luke writes this book, that we may have certainty about these things. And what I want us to do today as we begin our journey through the book of Acts is, is look at five things the church then and now must have certainty of if uh, if we are to fulfill the purpose for which we exist. Starting with, we must have certainty Jesus is alive. We must have certainty that Jesus is alive. Look with me at verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Why is the resurrection of Jesus so important? should be like a no-brainer question, right? But it's, it's a very important question. Why is the resurrection of Jesus so important? Because if we don't have certainty that Jesus is alive, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. The resurrection of Jesus is foundational to the Christian faith. For without the resurrection, there is no Christian faith. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, there is no forgiveness of sins. Our faith, whatever we would be placed in, would be futile. And we, of all people, as Scripture tells us, should be pitied. Most to be pitied. Because without the resurrection, let's face it, nothing has been conquered. Not sin, not death, not Satan, nothing. But, but, in rising from the dead... Jesus proved he conquered all these things upon the cross. And as a result of Jesus conquering these things, we who are in Christ, that is we who are putting our faith, our trust in him alone as our only hope in life and in death, we are also conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved Us, church, that is encouraging. That is gratifying in so many ways. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter eight, verse twenty-eight: For I am sure, and this is because we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord nothing nothing is able to separate us because of the work of Christ plain and simple because Christ rose from the dead so will we who are in Christ that is so encouraging church That is where our hearts should rejoice and be overwhelmed with worship and a desire to make this good news known to all peoples. Oh, friend, you may find yourself struggling this morning. I know we're talking about joy, and I know that we're talking about overwhelming excitement in the gospel of what Christ has done, but let's be honest. Maybe you have walked in these doors today, and you are struggling. Maybe you're overwhelmed with feelings of guilt maybe overwhelmed with feelings of shame over maybe past or present sin within your life, unable to understand how God could ever forgive you, which is why you continue to beat yourself up up over and over and over, as if you're giving your lashes to yourself for your own sin, trying to atone for your sin. Friends, hear this. The resurrection of Jesus assures us that every blow he received, the death that he died, the blood that he shed was enough to cover your sin, my sin, the sin of everyone who believes once and for all. So quit beating yourself up and rest in Christ and his finished work. Rest in knowing that your forgiveness isn't found in your atoning work, but in Christ's, because Christ is alive. But with that glorious news, let us be clear in our understanding of salvation, that our justification, that is being declared righteous before God, being declared right before God, legally, which is great news, isn't the end of our story as Christians. No, being saved from our sin isn't the end of the story. It's not like you're saved and then you just live the rest of your life however you want to live it. No, it is the glorious beginning of the Christian life. <laughs> the very glorious beginning. This is when our life really begins. Why? Because we were dead in our trespasses of sin, and now we are alive in Christ. We are new creation, and life begins at conversion. We come to life. We become children of God, heirs with Christ, citizens of the kingdom. (laughs) And subjects of who? The king. The king who all authority in heaven and earth has been given. Church, if Jesus has been given all authority, which he has We must what? We must obey everything he said. Not partially. Not just what sounds good to us. We must obey everything he said. Not not to earn our salvation, let us be clear. But with a deep desire to please our king who gave everything for us what is it jesus said well he said a lot right (laughs) that's a loaded question jeremy (laughs) he said a lot more than they could ever be summed up in in the gospels but everything he said everything he taught was about what the kingdom of god the kingdom of god Jesus starting his earthly ministry with these words. We we read them in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And here, as we look in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus is ending his earthly ministry doing what? Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Appearing to them how? Alive. He's appearing to them alive. And teaching about the kingdom of God. Which we who are in Christ. Are a part of. Friends. We are a part of a kingdom. We are citizens of a kingdom. We are heirs to the king. Therefore we must have certainty. That Jesus is. Alive. So I ask you this morning, do you have certainty that Jesus is alive? Is this reflected in how you live your life under the authority of the resurrected king? Number two, we must have certainty of the Holy Spirit. Look with me starting in verse four. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Of course, there are questions with this. I'm going to focus on two questions here. The first one is one I don't want to pass over as the result of assumption by like just assuming everybody's on the same page. And that regard is regarding who the Holy Spirit is. And yes, I say who, not it, but, but who. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, which means the Holy Spirit is eternal. He is the Spirit of God. He's never not existed. He is 100% God. Just as God the Father is 100% God, and God the Son is 100% God. But yet there is only one God, each equal in every respect, just functioning in different roles. So think Christmas time for a moment. Think Emmanuel, which is obviously referring to who? To Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh. God, 100% man, but Emmanuel means what? God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. God dwelling with his people at Mount Sinai and in the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament, right? But in each of those occurrences, it was always what? This far, but no further. You can come this close to the mountain, but you better not get any closer if you know what's good for you. You can approach the the tabernacle, or this person can approach the tabernacle or the temple, but they have to do so in this way and, and be at this point in time and so on and so forth. That's the Old Testament. Old Testament, Christ concealed. New Testament, Christ revealed and we move to the New Testament, we see the person of Jesus to start the New Testament all the way until Christ's ascension to heaven. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. God dwelling with his people as one of us. God taking on flesh and being with his people. Then Jesus will ascend to heaven, as the text tells us. And now through the the gift of the Holy Spirit, until Christ returns, we have God with us. We want to explore that further. What does that mean? That God is perpetually with his people. Brings us to our next question. What's the difference between John's baptism and the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And I believe the best way to describe the difference is to understand John's baptism as being preparatory in in nature. It was preparing for for something to come. So to be baptized by John was to identify oneself as being ready for God to come. It's getting ready for the kingdom of God. But the promise of the Father, coming with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, marked the beginning of a completely new era. It marked or signified that the long-awaited Christ Christ had come, no longer waiting for Christ to come, but that he had come. See, people were questioning John in Luke chapter 3, and they're wondering, okay, is, is John, are, are you the long awaited Messiah? Are you the one that everybody's been waiting for? And John is very clear to say, no, John the Baptist saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John being very clear to differentiate between his baptism and the baptism of the Spirit. They're not the same thing. As this spiritual baptism not only brings a a cleansing from sin, but brings the indwelling presence of God as a result of the cleansing that we receive. God dwelling, not in a man-made temple anymore but in us his children our bodies now serving as the temple of god the holy spirit dwelling within us see up to this point in history we've seen signs of the spirit's work but but not in his indwelling presence in the life of the believer which is why this is a significant turning point in biblical theology, biblical history. The coming of the Spirit is the start of the church age. And this is what these apostles were instructed to go to Jerusalem and to wait for. Jesus is leaving, but the Spirit is coming. The church is not going to be left alone to carry out the mission of god god is with and will remain with his people he's not abandoning us as orphans he is with us but now they are to wait why wait why do they why do they have to wait why can't they just go and do because when the promise of the father comes they're told in verse 8 of acts chapter 1 you will receive power when the holy spirit has come upon you so the Spirit, not only cleansing of sin, not only bringing salvation, but empowering those who are indwelt by the Spirit for the mission ahead. This is what we'll see in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. But from this point forward, every believer throughout history, upon their salvation, is baptized with the Holy Spirit and receives The power of the Spirit. And let's be clear there is no second baptism in the Spirit. Either you are baptized with the Spirit or you are not. You are in Christ, you are saved, or you are not. There's no second experience. And it's the indwelling of the Spirit that provides one, the evidence that we are actually in Christ. The indwelling of the Spirit provides the evidence that we are in Christ. Starting with initial faith and repentance. That's the evidence that we are following Christ. Having faith and repentance is a work of the Spirit. And subsequently, He gives and provides the, the fruits of the Spirit. The ability to ability and desire to obey God's Word. All of that coming from the Spirit. And then number two, the the confidence that we will remain in Christ comes from the Spirit. The, The indwelling presence of the Spirit provides we who are in Christ this confidence that we will remain in Christ. It was God's grace and the power that saved us, and it will be God's grace and power that sustains us to the end. We cannot lose that which God alone has secured for us, praise God. Number three there, the indwelling presence of the Spirit provides us the power to carry out the mission of Christ. The mission of God is possible because, and only because, we have been given the Spirit. We cannot do this in our own power. Therefore, we must have certainty of the Holy Spirit. So friends, I ask you this morning, do you have this certainty of the Holy Spirit, not just in theory, but in your own life, working in your life, drawing you to a deeper and deeper desire to obedience and love for him. And then the third certainty we must have, we must have certainty of the mission, which of course brings the question, what's the mission? Look with me at verse 8. After the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles, they're told what? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now the you here is referring to to who? Specifically, it's referring to the apostles. They will be his witnesses in these locations, locations a witness being one who testifies to what they have seen, what they have heard, what they have experienced. And they will first be Jesus' witnesses where? In Jerusalem, which is where they're told to go and to wait until the time of instruction. And then from there, they'll be, be Jesus' witnesses where? In Judea and Samaria which are geographic locations surrounding Jerusalem, extending out of Jerusalem. And then from there, there'll be Jesus' witnesses where? To the end of the earth. So at that time, places like Rome and Corinth and Galatia and Philippi and Colossae, all, all were to the ends of the earth. All these letters that we have in the New Testament are to the ends of the earth, the gospel going forth being proclaimed, disciples being made, churches being established, and then those churches, under the authority of what we know as the Great Commission, are to do what. Jesus is saying, "All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, go therefore under my authority and do what? Make disciples of all nations. The therefore being the authority, again, that Jesus is the one given the authority, it's His command. But it's under Christ's authority we are to go locally where we live, to be about as you go, as you're going, living your life, be about the work of making Christ known, making disciples. We want just to stay here. Go regionally, go broadly, go to the end of the earth. Every local church serving as an embassy of the kingdom of God carrying out the mission of our king in the power of the holy spirit this is the mission we must have certainty of as a church not that we are specifically called to go to jerusalem and judea and samaria that was a specific mission of the apostles That's the mission that this book records and teaches us about, as we see as we go throughout this series. Chapters 1 through 7, teaching us about the church in Jerusalem. That's the the subtitle of this particular point in our series. We're looking at the church in Jerusalem through chapters 1 through 7. And then when we get to chapters 8 through 12, we're going to be looking at the church in Judea and Samaria. And when we get to chapters 13 through 20, we're going to be looking at the church to the end of the earth. And in chapters 21 through chapter 28, we're going to be looking at the church in Rome. Notice the progression from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. But here's what's amazing, church. As it applies to Jerusalem and this original commission to the apostles. We are way further than Rome from Jerusalem. We are the extreme end of the earth that they never even knew existed. Term land, geographic. We here in Ransom, West Virginia, are 5,915 aeronautical miles from Jerusalem. 5,915 miles, like as the crow flies, to Jerusalem. It's an 11-hour nonstop flight. Think about that. And we have the gospel. That's not happenstance. That is not something to go... we have the gospel we who are in Christ have received the spirit of God how? through the faithfulness of the church for centuries prior martyrs persecuted church faithfully taking the gospel forth for generations and now we who have the gospel, we who have received the spirit, we have a mission. The same mission the church has had for over 2,000 years to make disciples here locally and to make Christ known globally. It is not an either or that is reserved for, for some Christians and not for others. It's a both and for all of us. So the question is, it or isn't, if we are to make disciples of all nations. No, the question is, how are we do it? How do we as a local church, how do we individually within this local church, how do we, how do, we do this? How, the question is, are we going to be faithful to our king and his commands? That's the question. See, church, we exist as a church to extend the apostolic witness of Jesus. That is his message, the gospel, the teachings of Jesus and the first apostles that we have contained in this book. We are to propagate it, proclaim it, teach it, explain it to all the earth, to all the world. That is why we exist, not only as individuals, but as a local church. So let's be clear. The local church does not have a mission. And we may call something a mission statement, but we don't have a mission. The church is the mission. The church is God's mission we exist to this end. The church is God's means of making Christ known into all the Earth. Because look at what God is doing. And to do so, I want you to think back, like all the way back. We're going Genesis one, two back. All right Adam and Eve back. And what were they called to do? Beat fruitful and multiply, right? Not a bad job description. That's your job. Then go out, subdue all the creation, be, care for this garden, till this garden, expand it. Where? Essentially through all the earth. Just let that garden continue to grow. Let it be God's people in God's place, living in, under God's rule, bringing about the glory of God as they dwell in the presence of God. All of the earth, kingdom of God. God with his people. But sin destroyed that, didn't it? Completely destroyed all of that. And what the Bible is, is is a beautiful story of redemption. From Genesis 3.15, in the midst of judgment, we see salvation coming forth. And it's a story of God establishing for himself a people to be a light in the midst of the darkness. And throughout the Old Testament, there's glimmers of light, there's glimmers of hope along the way, but then those glimmers are quickly overshadowed by by a lot of the darkness that is there. But then comes who? Jesus. Let that make your faces smile, church. (laughs) Then comes Jesus. And what Adam failed to do and what Noah failed to do and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob failed to do. And what David failed to do and so many others throughout the Bible, including us, failed to do. Jesus did. He did so gloriously. He did so perfectly. He lived the sinless life that we were expected to live. He died the death that we deserve to die. And in rising from the dead, he gives us a hope and a future that we do not deserve to. To have. And in sending the Spirit, He gives us a power to do what we could never do in our own. Overcome sin and carry out the mission of God. Which is what? Making disciples of all nations. All the peoples of the earth. And in the process, we see what? We see the kingdom grow. We see the church being fruitful and multiplying and spreading around the globe. We are evidence of this spreading. (laughs) Brings an ever-increasing longing. As we see this reversal of the curse, we see this already of the kingdom, but not yet of the kingdom because we still see sin and death and all those things. And it brings that longing, doesn't it? a longing for the already to be made permanent. We, we, want, we want Christ with the not yet to come and for Christ to make all things new. It should bring that desire in our life. The church, I asked you this morning, do you have certainty of the mission? Do you have certainty of the mission that Christ has placed upon every single believer? And are we being faithful to the mission? Which brings us to certainty number four. The last two, much shorter than the first three. Number four, have certainty Jesus was lifted up to heaven. So after Jesus had given them their mission, verse nine, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Jesus again started his earthly ministry by saying, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And then he spent his entire earthly ministry teaching them about what? Every parable, everything, focusing, coming back to what? The kingdom of God. And then he spent 40 days after his resurrection walking the earth, teaching them about what? The kingdom of God. And the last instruction that he gave before his ascension was what? For the apostles to be his witnesses about the kingdom. Under the power of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. To go forth with the establishment of the kingdom It's not only just teaching about the kingdom, the kingdom is coming into fruition. The king is on his throne. All this does what? It shows the immense importance of the mission. As the ascension of Jesus signifies the authority that he has been given as the son. We now, he now sits alive where? at the right hand of the father he sits alive at the right hand of the father reigning in power interceding as our great high priest on behalf of his church but also what's he doing he's waiting he's waiting so the apostles were told to go and they were to wait in Jerusalem for the spirit to come right and he came at Pentecost several days later. He is now working in the life of every believer from then until now. But from that point on, Jesus has been waiting, waiting until the appointed day when he will return and execute divine judgment. And so I ask you. Do you have certainty that Christ is reigning alive on high? Do you have certainty of Christ reigning as king? And are you submitting to his authority? Number five, do you have certainty Jesus will return? Verse 10, And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. These angels telling these apostles, it's time to get to work. Jesus is going to return. But your responsibility now isn't to just sit here and stare into the sky. It's not just to sit here and contemplate when Christ is going to return. It's to go to Jerusalem and wait. And when the Spirit comes, it's game on until Jesus returns. And church, this is the time in which we are living the time between Christ's ascension and Christ's return. We are not told when he will return. It is not our place to know when Christ will return, but we know that he is coming. And when he does, judgment is coming with him. But until that day comes, friends, we as the church have work to do. We have a mission to be about and it is not an obscure mission. The local church exists for one primary reason. We exist to glorify God by making disciples of all nations who love God and love people. And then making those disciples who in turn will go make more disciples who, of all nations who love God and love people. Which means everything we do as a church is to be to this end. And my prayer is that throughout the study of this book, the Lord will use the history of the early church to shape our understanding of the church and her purpose for today. And from that understanding and that shaping, we will be an ever-increasing light in the darkness of this world as a result. But let it start... That our journey begins with let us having certainty of these things. And so I ask you this morning, do we have certainty of these things? Do we have certainty that Jesus is alive? Do we have certainty of the power of the Holy Spirit working in our life? Do we have certainty of the mission that is before us? Do we have certainty that Jesus is ascended to the throne and reigning at the right hand of the Father? Do we have certainty that Christ will return and make all things new and bring just judgment when he comes? Do we have certainty of these things and are our lives being lived in correspondence to that certainty? Friends, every week as we gather and we come, we go through the the process, the ritual of, of coming to the Lord's table. Let it not be something that we go through by rote, But let it be something that brings us back to question and to think about the certainties of these things. Coming to the Lord's table each and every week, reflecting on his death, his burial, his resurrection, before that, even his life. But also the mission that has been placed before us. And the reminder that we are to continue to do this, partake of these elements until our Lord comes. Every time we take the cup, every time we take the bread, we are reminded of the mission that is before us. And we are committing once again, yes, Lord, I will be faithful to the cause. Yes, Lord, I am committed to you and I am reminded of your commitment to me. That's what we do every single time we come to the table. So what we're going to do now is I want, I want to have, give you a moment to prepare your heart to come to the table, to reflect upon these things and the certainty that you may or may not have of these things. Maybe you need to talk with, with myself or uh, someone else today about these things. Be more than happy to do so. Maybe you need someone to pray with you about where you are at with these things. More than happy to do so. But right now, prepare your heart to come to the table. Repent of any sin that may be in your life. And then I'm going to pray. And after that, if you are a baptized follower of Christ, trusting him as your only hope in life and in death, then we welcome you to come to the table. As we as a corporate body, then we'll come back and take these elements together and renew our commitment to Christ and our confirmation of these things together. So I'll give you time to prepare your hearts, and then I'll pray, and then you come to the table, and then we'll come back and take it together momentarily. Oh Lord there is much for us to consider from your text today there will be even more for us to consider in the weeks ahead Lord where our lives line up with your word let us rejoice and where our lives do not line up with our wor- your word Lord bring conviction um, bring awareness and Lord bring us to repentance let us be a people who are fully committed to being devoted followers of Christ. Trusting in you as our only hope in life and in death. May we be a church that is a bright light, a city on a hill in the midst of the darkness of this world. Help us to trust in the power of the Spirit to do that which we cannot do. And for you to do what only you can do and to do it for your glory. So Lord, as we, the church, come to the table today, may we do so with thanksgiving. May we do so with celebration. But we also do so with a renewed reminder of the call to obedience, of the mission that lies ahead. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.